From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigiter.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? This time, the Groundsman Conversations. Joining me, as always, my two fellow Groundsmen, the great and good Giles Morgan and the greater and gooder Roger Mitchell. Oh. Gentlemen, how are you? I don't know about that. I don't know. That. I'm not feeling that gooder and greater today. I had my third booster uh, and it's um, it's had a little bit of an effect the last couple of days, but I'm getting getting ready now to have an excellent episode. Roger, how does that sort of come up? Does that make you grumpier or make you more belligerent having a third booster? What what happens to you? What's the sort of... Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. It's a little bit like, you know, Spider-Man or something like that. You kind of like get a superpower somewhere. That's what all the conspiracists think, don't well, they? That there's two- well, and it's true because there are many people who've said over, you know, as, as this show has, has gone on, that you are a sort of dead ringer, could be Harry Potter's dad. So maybe you've just got more magic <laughs> powers now because of the, of the bister. So that's good. Other booster. 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 (laughs) Well, gentlemen, we have a guest joining us shortly who we will uh, introduce in a moment. But before that, it feels apposite that we actually chat about things in the world of sport that have caught our eye this week. So, Roger, why don't you lead us off? What have you got on your plate this week? Well, as we as a group, and I think today as well with the guests, they're going to be touching on the new worlds of, let's just call it crypto because that, that sets up the little thing, Ugh. the little thing. That, you know, I know you don't like that, but listen, you, you'll like this. And, and don't say I'm not even handed on this stuff, right? Because I'm giving you an open goal here, right? You know, all these people uh, around November time that were talking about taking their salary in Bitcoin. Yep. What, what do you think has happened to them? <laughs> you know, I've got one here, I've got Odin Beckham Jr., you know, like he, he he signed on to this when it was seventy five thousand. Well, it's it's what you call a fifty percent pay cut, Rog. It's pretty simple, um, you know. But <laughs> but as long as he hodls and he doesn't sell, apparently, if you read it about it on Twitter, he'll be fine. It's that simple. Well, he won't be because he'll be paying tax on seventy five. Rog, I'm not his accountant. I find the whole thing. <laughs> laughable frankly um and he's not even the one i'm worried about. it's michael saylor i'm worried about i mean that guy boy oh boy oh boy um what he's done to that company but it's uh yeah look it, it's it's funny enough the, the top seemed to be marked by that matt damon commercial did you see that for crypto.com i didn't no yeah matt damon did this ridiculously hyperbolic and very dramatic 
commercial for crypto.com talking about fortune favoring the brave and comparing people that buy crypto to people who've walked on the moon and gladiators of the past i mean it was absolutely absurd and it totally marked the top and he's been getting caned for it ever since now look we, we don't know it's just this week crypto prices in general and bitcoin in particular have been taken out behind the woodshed and given a good shoe in who knows what happens from here but it, <laughs> but it's it, you know look it's it's a it's a stark warning to anybody who thinks um these things are a one-way ticket. And look, Roger, I know you've know you you've just put up the first episode of the piece with Entourage about Web 3.0 and NFTs, and it was a fascinating conversation. I hope maybe we'll talk about that a little bit before we get into the conversation today. It really was excellent. But it's not straightforward, and I don't think that that world is going to be straightforward either. I think there's going to be an awful lot of bumps in the road like this before you get to anything. Well, you know, Grant, you're right, you're right. You know, I look at it a little bit like anything in life. If it was easy, anybody could do it. You know, I look at this a little bit like um, a high stakes poker game. You know, you look around the table and you're going to have your um, the chickens yeah, and you're going to have the sharks. There's, there's a pot of money in, on a, in a poker game and that pot of money gets divvied up at the end, right? Someone just took off half the chips on the poker table for this stuff <laughs> and you're all playing for much less now. So it's it's not the same. I get I get the analogy, but it's not the same. And um Look, it's it's a fascinating space, and, and I really did find that that conversation you had with uh, with Johan and Robbie really really interesting. But I just don't, I don't think it's as simple as these amazing dreams that are being sold about. Oh, and then one day we'll be able to do this, and clubs will be able to do that, and we'll be able to do that. And the temptation is to listen to that and go, well, that's what's going to happen. It's not going to be. It that is what's going to happen. Uh, look, it maybe is it what's going to happen. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But when you talk about you can buy an Arsenal collectible and it gives you seats to the match of your choice, how's that going to work? I mean, seriously, how's that going to work? You're going to sell 65,000 copies of this NFT and everyone wants to go at the same game because it's Liverpool in the FA Cup semi-final or whatever. There are so many hurdles to this, Rog. There are so many wonderful-sounding ideas that I'm sure will get fleshed out. But when you listen to the ideas, they all sound amazing. There are practicalities involved here that are going to take an awful lot of figuring out, and uh, it's going to be That's fascinating to watch it play out. It'll only be the good folk. It'll only be the good folk that be able to do it correctly. But anyway, we'll take this offline and we'll have a real go at it later in another show in, in the series. Jyla, what have you uh, what have you been uh, noodling about this week? Well, I'm going to go sort of straight into the physical world. Um, I, I uh, I'm a God bless you. Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm a sort of, as Roger will tease me, a sort of public school, middle class, whatever. So I, I was lucky enough to ski as a young boy um, in the holidays. And I was just very, very excited to see that over the weekend, the first time ever, a British skier, David Riding, Dave Riding, won in Kitzbühel in the slalom. The first time a British skier has ever taken gold in the history of FIS. And it's just brilliant because we have no right to be there. You know, dry ski slopes don't necessarily prepare you for the Hanencam. And he, you know, and and they don't. And you get carpet burns. Well, there are a few ways you can get those, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> well, as, as a public school boy, you probably know more than us about it, James. But carry on. Well, yeah, we'll take that offline too. Um, but anyway, just a big shout out to Dave Riding, who's now going to Beijing. And that promises to be a fun trip, I should think, with... Uh, <laughs> with the Chinese authorities bugging everybody's phone, iPad. That's gonna they're gonna have a hell of a 16 days up in the snow. But anyway, shout out to Dave Riding, brilliant performance. 35 years old. Um doesn't not often you can say that from from the UK that we have a champion. 
May, may I add on that, Giles, the, the the coverage, the drone coverage of Kitzbühel Unbelievable. that we saw. Wasn't it amazing? Unbe I mean, a, a, a truly amazing. And I, I mean, I, I know these slopes relatively well, and I, I, I've never seen them shown on TV like that. I think that is amazing. And, and, and um, you know, it's funny that the, the show we did with Graham Fry, TV production, the magic of it. Exactly. One of the, one of the things that skiing, in particular downhill skiing, has never been able to replicate. I, I've skied a few of these um, downhill tracks, not competitively, but just sort of meandering down them. And they are vertiginous and they are terrifying. You, you don't meander down a black yeah. slope. And they're, but you they're don't. going on, the, you know, it's the France clamour, they're going on the edge Listen, of their if you, if you, Yeah, if you, if you take to the turns as wide as Giles does, I would imagine oh, you probably okay. do <laughs> meander down <it> right. <laughs> And I like to stop halfway down for a clue vine. <laughs> um, but that you're absolutely right. The, the, the emergence of drones sitting behind the skier as they hurtle down at 130 kilometres an hour. Just the most brilliant. I mean, Ski Sunday, which for many of us who grew up in the UK was a sort of Sunday night, absolute sort of, you've got to put it in the diary, the greatest theme music ever written came yep. from Bach. We've apparently. all got that in our heads now. We've all got that in our heads. And then you've just got... The Han and Cam with proper production. I mean, uh, fantastic. So yeah, I'm I'm excited because it is the Winter Olympics coming up, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second. But you know, it's just quite special. So I'm feeling quite sort of buoyant. Thanks, Grant. I've I've got one for you on this uh, on. this China stuff because I know this is a guy you're really fond of, Shamat Shamath. What do you call him? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I wasn't going to let you away with this. No. So, uh, Sh Shamath is what I would call. What do you, would you call him? A, a new type of VC guy. He's a kind of like influencer VC. Um, not everybody's cup of tea. Not certainly. I, I think. Of, I think. You, I think. Williams. I think you could describe him in a lot fewer words than that, Rog. I mean, there are plenty of one-word descriptions. Starting of him. With I, sus C. I suspect there are Starting plenty of one-word descriptions <laughs> you could use to sum him up quite nicely. But yes, well, carry on. Well, to back that up, um, he uh, is also a, a co-owner of the, the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors. And this is a theme that I've always had a problem with, you know, the NBA and China. And, uh, and at one point, they're very, very keen to talk about all kind of like, don't offend everybody. And, uh, and, uh, but on China, they seem to have a, black, uh, a blind spot. You know, LeBron uh, said nothing about the chap Mori when he got slammed for all that kind of stuff. And then... You know, you get um, Shamath saying, um, what are we all bothered about? I'm quoting here. Nobody cares what's happening with the Uyghurs. You know, like this is genocide and like organ harvesting. Right. And this guy, I mean, like, I, I, don't, I don't know. And then, you know, to just to top it off and then I'll hear your opinion, Grant. You know, I saw a video and this is a video, so it's not a report. A video of American athletes arriving in China, coming off a bus and being uh, submerged with chants of the N-word from what was clearly a Chinese public uh, waiting for them. I will post this video uh, and people can you know, t take a view. So I just don't know what's going on in this whole area here. And your man uh, who comes from your world, he's a VC guy. You know, how, how do you read all this, Grant? <sighs> Look, Rog, I mean, the interview that he gave where he said this stuff, you have to watch it to understand that there is absolutely no way to paint what he said in a different context, right? People will say, oh, well, no, he, he didn't mean it that way. You had to listen. No, I've seen the whole interview, and what he said was absolutely disgraceful. And some, some people have, have said, you know, oh, well, he's only saying what other people think. The point here is absolutely moot. You know, here's a guy with a platform, 
a big, big platform. For whatever reason, there are a lot of people that look up to him and follow him and listen to him. And he's got a chance to do something to make a positive difference for these people. And he does that. I mean, come on. He's just hes a total scumbag, Rog. And um, this isn't the first time that he's done stuff like this and said things that are, are just, you know, display a complete lack of character. The NBA, it's not a blind spot. It's absolutely not a blind spot. It's a, it's a very, it's a spot in very sharp focus. They know where their bread is buttered. They don't want to upset their biggest market. And again, it's shameful. LeBron, the same. You know, he's kowtowing to the to the league, to the sponsors, in not coming out and saying this. You know, we this this started with Jordan, right? And this started with Michael Jordan when he was the most high profile athlete in the world. And they talked about this in the in the Last Dance, and he where he, he 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 was asked about politics and they wanted him to come out and be a staunch democrat and take a view on a, on a, an election in north carolina and support the democrat and jordan famously said republicans buy shoes too and it, mm-hmm. that was we don't have video of that it was said kind of tongue-in-cheek to beat reporters that traveled with him the whole time so he had a proper relationship with and felt he could joke around with them but that was him staying out of it right he was staying out of the fray he wasn't saying anything like what Chamath said last week. And and look, these sports stars, whether they like it or not, have an enormous platform. And they can they can affect positive change in areas that politicians struggle to do so because they they have a, a breadth of followers who are apolitical, who are on both sides of, of the political spectrum, are young, are old. They transcend every divide, both horizontally and vertically. And they have a duty to, to speak out and be good citizens and, and try and be there and make positive change. So what he did was shameful. Um, the Warriors distanced themselves from him immediately, which was interesting. You know, they, they realized where the, where the wind was blowing and came out with a, a, a statement the, ne- the next day calling him a man who has a minority interest in the franchise and has no role in the day-to-day, which is right. So they distanced themselves from him. They didn't, however, come out with any kind of statement of their own on the Ugas and talking about, you know, they didn't take the next step, Rog, which is to say something uh, and raise awareness about it for the same reasons that the NBA didn't and LeBron didn't. And, you know, it's it's all, frankly awful. And no one comes out of this with any kind of um, kudos at all. They all come out of it looking extremely bad, but none more so than Chemeth. To me, he's just showing his true colours. Mm. Giles, here's one for you. Uh, coming back to to last time we, we were together, and you brought on the the Djokovic stuff, and you very rightly said that it would be a running story. <laughs> so I enjoyed reading today this tweet that I saw where Rio Tinto, which uh, Grant will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is uh, one of the biggest miners in mm-hmm. the world, yep. mining groups. Uh, I think it's mainly Australian, but uh, in terms of mining companies, I think it's the biggest conglomerate in the world. Uh, they've had their mining licenses revoked in Serbia because obviously the Australians didn't treat Nolly the right way. Uh, Captain, how, how are you following this whole thing of the vax, no vax thing and Djokovic and the fallout? Where, where do you think it's heading this story? Well, it, what, what is, if you take the tennis bit of it first, it, it shows a little bit what the tennis world think of him. You've seen that the, the French may may not let him in so he may not he may not be able to play in the, in the French Open in uh, later on in the year I don't know what Wimbledon will do but um it, 
one, it's interesting. You've got you've got the Australian Open going on right now, and it looks like um, with Zverev going out, Nadal looks like he's got quite a run now at um, taking going to twenty one and and taking the taking pole position in the in the big three. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. I think from a sort of geopolitical thing. The, the, I mean, Djokovic just put his you know, feet in this. He he wasn't going to back down, didn't back down. The whole of Serbia has not backed down. Um, but I'm not sure there's a great universal love for Novak Djokovic uh, in the tennis world. So I think people are slightly turning their back, which kind of is a shame because he's one hell of a tennis player. But I was having this conversation with someone earlier today. Is What he has done personally is astonishing, and he remains obviously one of the greatest tennis players of all time. But what Federer and Nadal have both done is they've also given to the game and the game love them for that, what they've given. I don't think Djokovic has that same warmth within the tennis world. And so he's been cold-shouldered out. And I think it's um, I mean, it's an extraordinary story um, because he will presume, I think he's suing the entire Australian government. So, so, yeah, I, so yeah, that yeah. one's going to rumble on. And I don't yeah, read suppose, the room, Novak. Read the yeah, room. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it, it, which probably means they won't let him back for three years. Which means he will really genuinely then maybe struggle to win that title again, which he's been the king <laughs> of. So, fucking hell. What I think happened here in reading all the coverage, I, I actually think that the Aussies handled it badly. But I suspect that what happened was he got himself a dodgy certificate to say that he'd had COVID because he didn't want to get vaxxed. And I understand that. I've, I've got no problem if he decides that for him he doesn't want to get vaccinated. But he tried to, in trying to get around it, I think he got he basically pretended that he'd had COVID and got a thing that said, oh, yeah, he's just recovered from COVID. Then these images emerged of him out after he claimed he'd supposedly had COVID. So then he's caught in two lies, and he's got to admit to one of them, right? And the, and the bigger lie is saying, I lied on an immigration form to a government because you sign a piece of paper that says there are certain pitfalls that one of which is a, a deportation and a ban or the other lie was that he oh yeah he can say well i i shouldn't have gone out and gone to this award ceremony and that's obviously a much easier lie to work around and just lie about that and say look i'm sorry i shouldn't have done it and you can make excuses and say oh, you know mea culpa that's what i suspect happened and then, the, and, then, and then the story came out that he were, he and his missus are major shareholders in another, um, some sort of COVID yeah. drug or something. So that, that Yeah, he's, he's got an 80% ownership in it. Look, at the end of the day, it's it, no one comes out of this story with any credit whatsoever, unfortunately. Now, the fact that the Aussie, the fact that this case can go through the Aussie courts, which one would imagine would be the kind of highest authority in the land, is, is the law courts, and the Australian court can rule on this and then some minister who's not even elected, he's just given a post, has a, a veto over the highest court in the land is just farcical. I mean, it's absolutely farcical. So the Aussies come out of it with no credit. Djokovic comes out of it with no credit. Tennis Australia comes out of it with no credit. Nobody comes out of this with any credit whatsoever. It's just it's just another complete Yeah, bullseye. and I'm a shareholder of Rio Tinto, and I'm pissed off that they've lost the yeah. licenses and stuff. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a big lithium mine, Roger, and they've, and they've had the, had the yeah, permits I know. revoked. I know. Yeah, yeah but uh, it's it's just it's another sign of what the world has turned into right now, and it's, 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 the world's in a pretty dark place, right? And stuff like this provides some light relief for a, point in some ways and all the memes which i'm sure you were reveling in you know return of serb yes. and all those things were uh were all fun and games but 
it's you know underneath it, Rog, is um, there's a lot of darkness. I'm afraid. No, it's not. We've got to look on the. We've got to look for the good stuff. Do people want to be entertained? Are you not entertained? And listen, this is a period now where we are going to go gangbusters on M and A. You know, uh, we saw this week um, Activision be taken over by Microsoft. Yep. And uh, you know, these people have got. Uh, 70 billion of cash just on their balance sheet and cash you know like uh, i mean how much has apple got 200 billion um and and you know activision uh, drops off a little bit because of you know another great story the frat boy stuff that, that, that took their share price down a little bit and then 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 obviously microsoft sweep in on that weakness and, and pick it up and there's been all the discussion about which I think is correct, and it's linked to our guest coming up. Um, really, what is the role now of gaming? Uh, is it uh, really uh, a competitor to sport? Not just a competitor, a dominant competitor. Uh, I think it is. I think this deal shows where the, the action is, where the juice is. Um, Activision, I believe, is a, a, a company for millennium gain, gamers. Uh, I think there's a different kind of gamer, which is the blockchain gamers, which I think we know we'll hear our guests talk about and what we talked about with Robbie Young at Animoca. Uh, but but honestly, I'm thinking, guys, I don't know what you think. I, I'm thinking, what else is in play now? I, I mean, like Apple, Apple, Netflix, you, you know, um, can fan Jill DeZon. Uh, you just need to let your imagination go. And if these markets to continue to come down a little bit, um, Grant, I think they're going to start in the next six months spending big on M&A. And I love that. I just love that. You, you might be right, Rush. The only, the only caveat I would say to that is if the market starts to come down and rates go up, that makes it an awful lot trickier if people have to borrow money. It makes the hurdles for a lot of these deals. You know, the, the, the deals might still happen, but the juicy valuations that you expect you might be about to see might be trickier to get to. So I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't rule out a whole wave of M and A deals, but I think they may have just missed that that point where you make those Time Warner AOL type headline numbers and and pay stupidly over the odds for stuff. Like like I said last time, the Athletic last chopper out of Saigon. Yeah, yeah. Like it, I said last time, exactly right. And and it looks like you may be right. We'll see. I mean, after the last week in the markets and the, the shoeing that the tech stocks got, I wouldn't count them out just yet, but. If we've seen the kind of change that this portends, then yeah, I think there's an awful lot of things that are um, that are up in the air, Roger. Um, what else, Jars? Anything else that's uh, on your radar this week? No, I'm dying to hear from our next guest actually, because I think it all ties in very much of all the things we've been talking about, particularly with where tech and sport converge. And Roger's, as you say, Roger's last show was was absolutely brilliant, and I know a lot of people have have been in touch to say it was a sort of a, a great education. Um, to, to help understand what is a new, uh, the new lingua franca of, of, of the sports world, so uh, the new economy of sports. So well done and kudos, Rog, and I'm really looking forward to our next guest to learn a little more. Well, let's bring our next guest on. Our guest this week is Sahil Bloom. Sahil is, um, is, a, is a great guy. He's, he's worked at VC firms. He was a baseball player at Stanford, a very, very good baseball player at Stanford. And uh, he's been a mate of mine for a while, and he's done some phenomenal things on Twitter. If you don't follow him on Twitter, at Sahil Bloom, he's, he's really, it's been a meteoric rise. He's, uh, he's gone from zero to several hundred thousand followers in no time at all. And really, that's been on the strength of his content. And um, a, a few weeks ago, there was a whole tweet thread that came out when Sahil saw that the X Games was up for sale and he talked about buying it and buying it with a DAO or as Roger would call it, a DAO. 
um, <laughs> and, and, and bringing a community of people together to uh, to buy the X Games. And when Roger and I saw that thread, we said, well, you know, we have to get Sahil on the program to talk about that. So that's what we're about to do. So without any further ado, why don't we welcome our guest, Sahil Bloom. Well, Sahil, welcome to the podcast, mate. It's, uh, it's good to see you and good to have a chance to chat. Thanks for having me on. Excited to do it. Well, this is the perfect podcast to have you as a guest because uh, the two things that we kind of tend to kick around here are sports and, and finance, which are both worlds that you know very, very well. And so I, I think what I'd love to do first is just kind of get the story of your love of sports, where it came from as a kid, the sports you played. I know one particularly kind of grabbed you as you got older, but but take us back to the young Sahil and, and your first involvement in sports. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was born in New York City. My dad was a professor at Columbia at the time. And so we lived in a little apartment on the Upper West Side, um, like faculty housing up there. And so you don't have much space, right? Like I was a little kid and we had this little courtyard in front of our apartment that kind of went out to the road and my dad would go out there and throw me like a little wiffle ball when I was, I was probably three years old or something. And, um, he jokes that once I could start hitting it into the street, which was probably, I don't know, 20 feet, <laughs> he knew that it was time to move somewhere where we had more space because right. it just became a pain in the ass. And so that that's kind of like my first introduction to it, I think. But, you know, my dad had grown up in the Bronx playing stickball in the street. That was, you know, what him and all of his friends did. They'd, you know, run out of the street when cars came and, and go back. My grandfather, who on my mom's side, I'm uh, Indian, grew up playing cricket. So he played um, on a state team um, in India and Bangalore. And um, I think from that, too, I got this like kind of baseball, you know, hybrid gene that came from both sides. But, I, you know, from a young age, I, I had always played different sports, was always running around, probably up to no good and, and wreaking a bunch of havoc. But, yeah, my dad always jokes that it was time to leave once I could start hitting it into the street. Tell me, Sahil, uh, so how did that progress into becoming particularly good at baseball? still considered uh, America's pastime. Why did that become the number one sport for you? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I was never like into specializing. My parents were big on just do things you love, you know, whether it's sports or otherwise, and just pursue things that you're interested in. You know, now sports have become really I, I mean, it's there's so much politics with parents. I don't know if it's the same way internationally, but in America, you know, kids are specializing in one sport when they're like 10 and they're going and spending thousands of dollars on lessons and they're, you know, on special teams and um, they're only playing that one sport from the time they're 11 to try to get a college scholarship or whatever it is. And so much for me of my personal athletic success, I would attribute to the fact that I played a bunch of sports. Like I played yeah. basketball, I played soccer, I played, um, you know, I ran. Like I, I just did a bunch of things. I wouldn't say I was particularly amazing at any of them, um, but that like building of kind of, you know, different motor functions and different team experiences and working with different people, all of that really contributed. But for me, I guess the baseball turning point didn't come until kind of like junior year of high school, sophomore, junior year of high school. Um so I was, I don't know, 16, 17 mm -hmm. years old. I, I had, I had been good. You know, I was good in little league. Like I could always throw a little bit harder than most people. I was a pitcher. Um, but I played shortstop, I'd pitch and, and, um, I always knew that I was like pretty good. Um, and I played on the varsity team freshman and sophomore year of high school and did well, but I always threw, you know, 80 miles an hour, which is, is kind of, 
okay. Like it's good for high school in Massachusetts, but not on the next, right. not, not on the next level. And so I thought, you know, my goal would be going to Harvard where my dad was a professor at that point and maybe playing in the Ivy league. Um, and I had a coach, my high school coach who kind of called me in and asked what my goals were with baseball after my sophomore year. Um, and I said, yeah, I'd love to go to Harvard or go play in the Ivy. Maybe, maybe I could do that, you know, in an upside case. And he said, how about Stanford? And I remember looking at him like this dude was crazy. <laughs> like, the, you know, I mean, what do you mean? You know, Stanford's one of the best programs in the country. I'm throwing 80 miles an hour. And he basically kind of put the challenge on me of, you know, if you want to go put in the work to do it, um, I think you have the potential for it. And so that off season, um, I went to a brand new um, facility, this guy, Eric Cressy, who you guys should chat with at some point, actually, um, who's become this now amazing performance coach. You know, he's the um, he's the performance coach for the New York Yankees now. Uh, but mm -hmm. at the time was, you know, a no name. You know, people didn't know who he was. I started training with him in that offseason. I went from throwing 80 miles an hour to throwing 92 miles an hour. Um, wow. And that was really like this turning point. Suddenly colleges, you know, were talking to me. People were interested. Um, and then I realized, okay, it's time to kind of double down on baseball and I can really make something out of this. So, Hale, it's, I find that very interesting. On the podcast, and the, we've had a, a, a lot of, sort of world-class athletes um, coming on the show as well. And everybody always talks about an individual who was a turning point individual who either mentally or gave people confidence physically to go to the next level. Was Eric that person to you? Was he the one that took you from good to, to, to that much better? Yeah, I would say it was the two the two coaches. So my high school coach, um, John Beverly, who was the first one to kind of just like unlock me mentally to realize that I could accomplish much more than that bound that I had set on myself. We, we all place, especially as kids, we place these really unnecessary caps on what we think we can accomplish because yeah. um, we're scared and we don't understand and we don't really know what we're capable of. And, and your parents tell you that you can do anything, but they're supposed to tell you that. And so sometimes it takes an outside person trusting you, saying something, believing in you to where like suddenly you have that snap in your head of, holy shit, you can actually go do that. Um, and so it was, you know, Coach Beverly was the first one. And then Eric Cressy was a huge, I mean, being around his facility, as much time as I spent there, suddenly they started having professional baseball players coming in. And I was a 16-year-old kid in high school. And you start seeing these guys that are playing in the minor leagues. Um, one year, Kurt Schilling was training there, you know, who became, you know, he's a Hall of Famer, probably. I forget if he's in yet or not, but he should be a Hall of Famer. Um, he will be. Yeah, he should his be. Sock, I mean, if people sock, get over the politics, the baseball hall of fame. yeah, the, the sock probably already is, but it, I think I think he gets held back because people get hung up on his politics. But it's kind of irrelevant. You know, he, he was an amazing, amazing baseball player. But he came in and trained one year. And so I'm a 16, 17 year old kid. And I get to watch and just observe and be around these guys who are making a career out of this, who are, you know, really on a different level in terms of their preparation. Um, and that just being in that environment is you understand it, but immersion with anything is the key to growth. Yeah. And I was suddenly immersed in this environment of really high performing people. Uh, and you really have no choice but to adapt and to grow. How, so to, let me dig into the mindset of that, because I'm always fascinated by kids who have a real natural talent and then they, and they take that first step. And, and a friend of mine had a son who was a very talented golfer and he got a scholarship from the UK to go to Oklahoma State, which is a big, big golfing program. And that step up from being the best kid of anybody he knew and anybody he used to dominate over here, he went into this new environment where he was by far the worst player, you know, in the program. And for the, for a lot of kids, that's fuel because they know they're good, they know they've got it in them and they want to get better. And for other kids, 
it just crushes everything they thought they were about themselves. So for you, how, how did that move into a program like Stanford go from a, from a mental standpoint? And how did you deal with the jump? Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, that story really resonates with me because um, basically I got to Stanford and I got kicked in the face you know, both academically and athletically. Uh, I had grown up in this small town and I was a big fish in a small pond. And, and honestly, I thought too highly of myself, right? You know, I was the star athlete in the county or state, you know, all league, whatever, like got all the accolades, um, newspaper articles, like all this stuff when you're 17, 18, which you don't really deserve. And I kind of just became too full of myself. And also academically, I hadn't really had to try that hard in school. And, um, you know, I got this scholarship to go play. I didn't really have to go through the full application process the way a normal student going to Stanford does. And um, I remember getting to campus the first day and I, I went to classes and I remember just just being like, holy shit, this is like a different level than what I'm used to. Um, everyone's really smart. They all seem to be getting it and I don't. And then I went to practice that day and I was watching guys throw bullpens, like the practice pitching sessions. And um, I remember sitting there and thinking like, man, the ball just gets to the plate a lot faster when they throw it than when I throw it. Right. And I had that like very visceral reaction to it. And, you know, over the course of that whole fall, it was just like nonstop getting punched in the face over and over again in class is, you know, not doing as well as I was used to at, you know, practice, not being as good as I was used to being, um, you know, suddenly not being one of the guys that the coaches really care about or look to because I was, you know, not expected to do much at that point. Um, and I remember it <clears throat> kind of discouraging me at first. And then over that winter, I went home and I kind of had a chance to like catch my breath. And I basically just had this realization that I wasn't going to be the most talented person at anything. I just realized like, you know, I might've used to have been the most talented person in my small little pocket, but on this grander scale, I was mm. never going to be the most talented. And so what I realized was if I was going to accomplish anything, it was going to be because I just put in the work and that I had grit and consistency. And then I would just keep showing up and people, you cannot lose if you're just the type of person that keeps showing up. It's so yeah. hard to beat someone that does that. And so I just decided, and I had a conversation with my dad. I remember him saying that to me, like, remember what's special about you. Um, and to me, that's what it was, was you just couldn't keep me down. Like I, I would give up a home run and then I was going to be throwing a strike the next pitch. Didn't matter. Like I wasn't going to get discouraged. It wasn't going to break me. Um, I was just going to relentlessly, relentlessly keep coming after people. Um, and that ended up being what kind of, kickstarted not only my baseball career at Stanford, but also my life. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things that I learned from that. Yeah. And it's interesting, again, with with so many sportsmen and women, it, it, it's that doggedness, I guess, which is the difference. Athletes, you know, have great, great abilities of, of all kind, but actually it's that ability to keep coming back. I, I've worked with a lot of athletes over over my career and whether they're tennis players, golfers, rugby players, cricketers, they all just don't like to lose and they will also bounce back. One of the great friends on of this show who's been on the show recently, a cricketer called Chris Cairns, who has had a horrific accident in the last three or four months, had a had a, a stroke and, and oh, no. watching him now fight back through major disability, maybe one of the most inspiring things people who, who follow cricket will have seen in, in, in recent years is a guy with enormous mental fortitude who's now having to prove it in, in a very different way. But my God, he, he, his resilience is, is astonishing. So I can understand what you're saying. 
Yeah, I you know, it's it's definitely something everyone deals with as athletes. You know, I would say a lot of like I, I I am friends with and have been around with some exceptional, exceptional athletes. At Stanford, you know, I was friends with a lot of the guys on the football team, the baseball team, guys that are still playing, have made fifty, hundred million dollars playing these sports. And it's a fascinating thing that you see because you find these people that are unbelievably talented that just don't have that little edge and so aren't able to make it. Um, you know, like the edge is in my mind, it's, it's a funny thing. It's almost like this irrational confidence in yourself where you can go out on the grandest, most public stage and get completely destroyed and still go home that night and think you're the best in the world at whatever right. it is. Irrationally, you might not be. Like, I remember thinking this, I I was not that good. Like, I, you know, I, I was good enough to go play and I had a good career and put up decent numbers. But, I mean, I could give up a grand slam on national television and still go to bed that night and think I was good enough to show up the next day. And a lot of people that were way better than me would have that bad moment and then basically just get down on themselves and say, oh, maybe, you know, I did this wrong and I'm not that good and, and just lose that edge. And if you do that, it's a really, really slippery slope. Sahil, this is, this is one of the reasons um, we wanted to bring you on because this, this attitude, which frankly I love and I think the Americans have got it more than anybody, is, is very much reflected in, in what, what you are doing now. I mean, if people look at what you've built as a personal brand, and, and now I'm coming on to our sponsor question, the Sports Digita question, you know, you've obviously, with this attitude, you've looked at the way the world was going in the last two or three years, and you have, through uh, communication and through narrative, you have built yourself a community that is frankly astonishing. You know, um, what is it that you saw two or three years ago in the way that the creative economy was developing, the influencer economy was developing, and you said in this way, I'm always going to show up and I'm going to get myself to half a million followers on Twitter. T tell us a little bit about your mindset back then. Yeah, so I mean, uh, it was it was only eighteen months ago, which sounds crazy because my whole life has really changed. So I, I, you know, I basically COVID hit March twenty twenty. I was working in the private equity world. I'd been for the last six years prior to that, rising through the ranks, and things were great. I kind of knew that it wasn't the best fit for me personally, but didn't really know what my next move was. COVID hit, and um, suddenly the 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 entire world was in turmoil, right? In a lot of different ways, financially, health, obviously, there was all these different things going on. And what I noticed poking around on Twitter and seeing the different narratives out there was that people were looking for answers and they wanted answers on the economy. They wanted answers on finance. They wanted answers on things that were important to them. But what they were getting hit with was either experts who were throwing a bunch of big jargon at them and basically talking over them, making them feel dumb, or these like TikTokers that were telling them to YOLO into call options and telling them to do things that I personally think are financially irresponsible. And there was no one that was just providing kind of balanced, simple logic and breakdowns of these topics. And so I sort of just thought, okay, there's there's a gap here. There's there's room to what I call like basically abstract the complexity of these <laughs> topics and provide something that's very simple and digestible, accessible. 
And I think it applied at the time to finance, but I think it applies broadly to life, to growth, to, you know, frameworks, ways of thinking, mental models. And so as I started writing more, um, I kind of found these different communities, these pockets of the world where the content and the topics and what I was writing about were really resonating. And for me personally, to the point on kind of being relentless about it, whatever I do, I try to do consistently. It's just my mantra on life. I don't believe in being like a flash in the pan, you know, one hit wonder on anything. And I don't think anything really good comes from that. And so my plan was, I'm just going to keep showing up and just consistently produce. And if one thing doesn't take off the way I thought, that's okay. I'm going to come back the next day or the next week or whatever it was. And so I've basically done that. I mean, over the last 18 months, I've probably written about 200,000 words on Twitter, you know, across a couple hundred longer form pieces. I started a newsletter that grew to, you know, 60,000 plus now, which is amazing to me to have the podcast. And it's all really just been on the back of consistently creating value for people. And I think that's the only way it grows. So like, let, let's think about that a little bit, because there are a lot of people, and, and we'll remember that we, we're, we're a sports podcast here. There's a lot of people in sport and in general that I've got a little bit of an issue with the influencer model, especially when they play that community, and and that could be the the Paul brothers. Equally, it could be overtime, and they then build something, some form, uh, some Frankenstein version of a sports format around that community, and it works. It works, Sahil. Um, you know why it works, but they resent it. What is your view about how? Traditional sport, and obviously you come from the most traditional of them all in baseball in America, and what you know is coming round the corner, get into Web3 if you want at this point, we'll get in later, but you know what I mean? How <laughs> does these two worlds coexist? Yeah, so, so my general view is that sports need to become more engaging for their fan bases and communities. Sports are in a lot of ways like the ultimate community-based activity. The tribalism around sports, around the teams, around the communities on a macro scale, like you know the massive teams, the Manchester Uniteds of the world, the New York Yankees, the New England Patriots, all these you know Green Bay Packers, great macro scale. But on the tiny scale, there are these amazing niche micro communities that have fervent, fervent fandom around a sports team and around an, around an entity. And that is something that can be harnessed much more today than it ever has been historically through technology. And so I think like, as I look to the future, Web3 has become this big buzzword, NFTs, you know, DAOs, all of this stuff that's happening. Great. You know, whatever you want to call it, something that allows people to engage more directly with their communities and with their teams, with the sports, and really participate in the value that they are creating as a member of that community, I think is a great thing. Because to me, at the end of the day, you take the New York Yankees or you take the Green Bay Packers, the value of that franchise is the community. It's the people who consistently show up. They buy the merchandise, they watch the games, they buy the tickets, they talk about it on social media. That's the value of the franchise. And that's that's the people, that's the community. But 
historically, we've never had a way for those people to actually capture value that they were creating there. They captured value in the form of fun, of utility, of dopamine that they felt from watching it, but not economically. And now we're starting to have these new layers of infrastructure and new layers of technology that actually might allow them to, and to turn that whole model on its head and also you know, remove rent collectors from the system, R- remove these like kind of middlemen that have been capturing value and well, basically create a world. You're not talking about agencies, are you? Well, <laughs> it could be agencies. It could be the owners of the teams. It could, I mean, management layers, but basically allow athletes and fans to capture more of the value that they're creating and, and remove some of the value that's being chopped up in the middle. Because the reality is athletes have also you know, been undercompensated for the value they're creating in these worlds. And I think athletes and fans who are the kind of supply and demand on the two ends uh, deserve to capture more value that they're creating. So you know, t- talk to us a little bit. We, we've had a number of prominent private equity guys on the podcast talking to us about this. As someone who's been in both worlds, talk to us a little bit about how you see this wave of private equity money coming into sport from a private equity point of view, and also with your understanding of kind of the macroeconomic picture, are they late to this or are they early? Or is there a danger that a lot of this money is going to be thrown at sports at increasingly high valuations at precisely the wrong time? Tough question. So every single time, this is just like a broad lesson I've learned, every single time I've um, not done something because I thought I was too late, I ended up regretting it. Generally speaking, when I have that personally, when I have that feeling of like, ah, shit, I'm too late, it's some mega trend that actually I I would have been early if I had jumped into. And so I naturally, like whenever I start thinking, oh, I'm too late on something, I like to dig in on it just as a matter of principle to try to really understand it and learn more. With sports, you know, the team investments and the, you know, the, all the money that's flown into that from these like Mm -hmm. hyper rich and wealthy organizations or the sovereign wealth funds, I think for a lot of them, it's like a play purchase. They, they don't care. And it's not, you know, it's not something that they're, maybe they're thinking of it financially, but it's also access, it's cachet, it's status signaling. There's a lot of other benefits. Historically, these teams have only increased in value. And in this like hyperinflationary environment, is it a good investment? I think they hold their value pretty well. The fan bases are very real. The sports, you know, have continued to grow. Personally, I think there are some sports I wouldn't, invest in as excitedly as others. I think soccer is a great one, um, but baseball has an aging fan base um, and they need to innovate around the sport. It's gotten quite boring and it's so long and the games are tough to watch and the season's so long. There's a lot of innovation that needs to happen. Um, Football might have challenges, you know, American football might have challenges because of injuries and the brain injury science that has now come out. So I think there are sports that are going to be more exciting as investments. I'm most excited about people that are investing in this like new wave of infrastructure that enables um, hyper fandom, that enables these micro communities, that enables creators who have um, fan bases to engage directly around content creation and consumption. I saw a business recently that's allowing... um, creators to uh, <clears throat> basically to host uh, like a live stream of a sports event and kind of commentate and talk and provide their feedback on it while everyone watches simultaneously. Massive audience can all watch a uh, an AC Milan game together and the individual who kind of owns this audience is able to like talk to them and provide commentary on the match while they watch it. And that's like a very cool new thing to me. It's innovative, interesting ideas like that. Um, that excites me in terms of capital inflows. So, Hill, do you think that um, 
you talked about the, the, the bookends of, of the, the athletes and the fans. Do you think that those that uh, enjoy champagne and canapes from the hospitality boxes before swooping in to buy a franchise or a team actually understand the concept of what fandom and therefore real value is? No. <laughs> um, no, I, I and... You know, maybe no is a blanket answer there. I would say uh, it's the, the vast majority answer. no. Yeah, I think the vast majority no. I mean, it's the elite class, right? It's like the elites that they don't understand because they don't care. They've never gone to a game and had to deal with a stampeding crowd. They haven't gone to a game and felt the riot when your team loses. Um, they haven't really viscerally felt that. The vast majority of them grew up very wealthy as well and so probably sat in the box when they were a kid too and so never experienced that. Um yeah, I grew up going to like sitting in the nosebleeds at Red Sox games or Yankee games and, um, you know, dealing with the rowdy drunk fans after a win or a loss. And, the, you know, uh, that experience is where you learn what fandom is and you learn the power of fandom. Um, fandom is like a amazing blue collar grassroots thing when you really feel it. You like go to your local bar and you all watch the game together. In San Francisco, there's a Patriots bar. Um, like where everyone goes, all the Boston fans go to this game and watch games on the on the weekend. There's a Michigan bar, like where Michigan fans go and watch games. That's incredible. It's global and people go wherever and it doesn't matter. It's not a fancy bar. It's like a shitty dive bar, um, but so much fun because you can get people together and all of a sudden you have this community where, um, you know, I'm in India walking on the street and I see someone with a Stanford hat on and suddenly me and this person that I just have never met, never seen in my entire life, never will see again share something in common. Um, and it can be a sports team. It can be a university. That is such a powerful connection point between human beings. Um, and that is the value here. That's like, that is what is exciting about it. But do the elites understand that? No, I don't think so. Well, Sahil, this is why I think Joe's question there is absolutely fantastic. Because if we look at the last three or four years, uh, Grant is correct. We've seen this wave of private equity, big American groups investing, sovereign wealth funds. And certainly in this side of the pond, there has been a lot of pushback that they don't get it culturally. Uh, the Super League would be the best example of that. This is why I really wanted you on the show, because this is really strange, this. The new world of creator of crypto, of blockchain, of Web3, whatever you want to call it, is not liked by the boomer generation. They don't get it. They, they just don't get it. But in some ironic way, I believe that this is the most Corinthian thing that can happen to sport. This, for me, is the technological way that you get fan ownership of clubs, something that has never happened in Europe, really. Tell us about that. Tell us about that in the context of what you wrote about the X Games and DAOs and all of that. Explain to the audience what you mean by that, Sahil. Yeah. So this is, in my mind, the natural kind of arrow of progress, if you will, around ownership. Historically, teams, people were compensated through wages. That was the industrial age. You had, you know, you'd pay your workers wages and they would work for the organization. Silicon Valley figured out that it was actually a better compensation and incentivization mechanism to pay in equity. So they would give their employees tiny little bits of equity in order to grow. 
The next phase of that is community equity. You have these communities that are creating so much value for your company or for your entity or for your team, and you're able to incentivize them with upside and the value that they are creating. That is the natural extension of what has the progress that's been happening societally around around, um, incentivization. This, to me, is how we apply it. DAOs, in the traditional sense today, um, might have challenges with doing it because there's securities regulations that stop you. Uh, you know, it depends. I don't know what it looks like in Europe. In the U.S., it's tough um, to own a business via DAO because you start ha- running into things where you know non-accredited investors are you selling an unregistered security. But the reality with them, and at a kind of high level, is distributing ownership to the people that are actually creating value within a system. So you might have, you know, in the context of the X Games, if a DAO were to own the X Games, um, you would have athletes that own tokens as part of this DAO. Um, And maybe they can earn more tokens for winning and for creating fandom and events. You'd have fans that might own tokens for uh, kind of grassroots groundswell that they're creating and fan engagement. Maybe they're hosting small events and so they're able to earn tokens. You would have fans that are earning tokens for managing the community, for just kind of stoking excitement, stoking engagement. So the bottom line principle of it is you are distributing value to where the value is being created and it's direct. So you don't have all of these intermediaries. You don't have all these layers of bureaucracy um, that kind of collect rent along the way. You are literally able to capture uh, more of the value by the people that are actually creating that value. That, that I, Listen, I want to continue on this because I genuinely believe this is a watershed moment and could be quite dramatic for the world of European sport. However, it's got a lot of hurdles. Some of them you mentioned there. But, you know, let, let's get into the core of this a little bit. You know, the, the DAO is a decentralized organization in the main where decision-making power is spread to the community. We know, and this is what I want to ask you about, we know that fans are not rational. That's the beauty of fans. They do not make great decisions, right? So how the hell can you have a decentralized community of irrational fans running a sports organization for long-term sustainability? I can't Roger, square if they're that all, yet. If they're all run by irrational fans, yeah. if they're all run by no, irrational fans, but it I, becomes rational. I think what you're hitting, <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like a, all, all rationality and it flips into <laughs> right. rational. Um, no, I... Um, Look, I think you're hitting on one of the fundamental issues with with DAOs that needs to be solved, which is decision making in wartime. It sounds great to say fully decentralized, everybody votes, and when things are good, we all know like that's fine. It works. If you know, if if everything's up and to the right, everyone looks like a genius. Like everyone's a genius in a bull market. <laughs> as soon as you hit wartime, how is decision making going to work? when people disagree on a bunch of things, and when you need to act really quickly. If you go ask any CEO who has been successful over the last 20 years, they'll tell you in wartime, that's when it really matters to be centralized, to be able to make very quick decisions, pivot quickly, bring people in. And so my biggest concern with DAOs is just that. How do you actually manage wartime? And and how do you, we we all know, decentralized decision-making is slow. It's a clumsy process. And so one of the biggest questions I have and something that I know a lot of people are working on is how do you actually um, hasten decision-making and make it work effectively during bad times just as much as it works during good times? We're all in, in violent agreement that the, the power of the fan is the way forward. 
Is there anybody or anything that you're seeing? We, we talk, you know, we're talking about hypothesis. We're, we're talking about the growth of where things are going. And Roger has been very, very bullish on this in the last few weeks. You and you two may well be related. You just don't sound similar. Um, I just wonder if anyone is doing this, or any, anyone that you you are you're seeing out there in the in the bull rushes that it's going to be bringing forth at the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a bunch of people working on this. Um, there's something called uh, Kraus House. That's a DAO that's trying to buy an NBA team. Um, there was a Washington Post article, I think this morning or yesterday, about a group trying to buy a European soccer team. Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of people that are thinking about this and trying to do it personally. And you know, maybe, maybe people will disagree with me on this, and that's totally fine. I think the absolutism around these processes is actually going to hold back progress around them. So what I mean by that is the purest form of doing this is you form a DAO and the DAO buys the entire team. And now the DAO owns the team. The 30% purity version of this is a DAO partners with an ownership group that is going to go buy a team. And a DAO owns 20% of the team. And now we have an environment where community is part of that DAO and is able to participate in the value created by this team. And decision-making authority remains somewhat centralized. And so it's not a pure, you know, decentralized form of ownership, but we're a little bit closer to where it should be in that athletes and the community and fans are able to participate in the value being created by these organizations. I think that in order to get to the purest form, the best path is to do a, you know, kind of progressive decentralization, as it were, of this overall process. And so when I was proposing the X Games as an example, I think the best path to going and doing that, I don't think ESPN or Disney wants to sell to a DAO. It's too, it's too big of a headache, yeah. legal, it's never happened before. Do I think they might be willing to sell to a well-known investment ownership group that happens to have a DAO as a single line on the cap table? Absolutely. And that would be a very cool earned media moment. And you get a lot of progress from that in a sense. So I think the path to getting to the end point that everyone wants is to do this in a progressive and slow and steady manner. And the absolutism, I think, and kind of the maximalism around these is actually going to kind of hold back in a certain way progress against it. I'm so fascinated by this because of this conjecture. So this hypothesis of sports animal farm which is what we're talking about at the very beginning. Who are the Napoleons and snowballs who are going to get in the way? Uh, regulators, as always. I think they get in the way of a lot of things, and I'm generally anti-regulation for that reason. Oh, oh, um, the UK sports industry wants to have a regulator uh, set up by a populist government. That sounds like a great <laughs> idea, doesn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, I think regulators get in the way. I think the owners of the other teams get in the way. You know, in all of these leagues, owners have to vote and you have to get approved. And this is like the elite class, right? They don't want other people coming in. They don't want the, you know, dirty guy on the corner in his cap that's a huge fan. They don't want him to be an owner because they're in the boxes eating their cap and, you know, their crepes and, you know, having their champagne. They actually don't want that guy or that girl to be part of the ownership ranks because it dilutes the status signal and the value of it to them. And so I think there's going to be a lot of kind of the establishment pushing back on, on this whole thing, which I think with every form of progress you've seen historically, the establishment has wanted to push back because it's not good for the establishment when the disruptors come in or when the uh, when the innovators come in. Yeah, so so true. So, so you, you, you touched on it there, and it, it, everything we've talked to now has really brought us to this X game story, which is such a fascinating story. And, and there will be plenty of people listening 
in Europe, perhaps that that aren't fully aware of the story. So, so let let's walk through that from the time you saw what was being proposed by ESPN and Disney, and perhaps you could give people a little background on why they're doing this, because I think that's an important part of the story too. You know what you proposed, and then the reaction to it, and how that story has progressed. So this is an idea that I've had for some time. In my prior life and investing career, I was involved with a number of action sports companies. I'm still on the board of a company called Fox Racing, which is the largest motocross and mountain bike performance apparel business in the world. Amazing business. And I had been around action sports and seen the unbelievable community, loyalty, um, and fandom that exists around these sports. And I had grown up, like a lot of other people, watching the X Games, which if people aren't familiar, it's like the extreme sports Olympics. Tony Hawk back in the day was the star of this, doing the 900 and the half pipe. I had a lot of nostalgia attached to those sports and those games. I played Tony Hawk Pro Skater, you know, on my Nintendo 64 or whatever it was, PlayStation. And the X Games have languished. ESPN was the original creator of it, you know, now owned by Disney. And effectively, it's it's kind of been a stepchild of ESPN and Disney's portfolio. They're really prioritizing streaming. They're getting away from you know this broadcast stuff. And so it's just become this kind of underloved asset. It's tiny for them. And they aren't investing in it or putting the capital and the resources behind it to really modernize it and make it into something exciting. And so COVID hit and all of a sudden they needed cash because all their parks were closed. And so they put out a thing, you know, that got leaked basically that they were starting to think about divesting Dex games. And they were open to the idea of having someone just take it over and they would own, continue to do distribution and, and broadcasting, or you could just buy the whole thing. And the numbers that were floated were somewhere in the 50 to $100 million range to kind of take over Dex games. I know a few people then floated around it and thought about it. And couldn't really figure out what the angle was at the time, you know, or a team to go execute. So I had been mulling on it ever since seeing that. And then 2021 comes around and all of a sudden you have this really unique moment where all of this stuff comes in from the Web3 world. Yeah. That is enabling its infrastructure to enable you to um, harness the value of this fandom and bring community ownership into a really a very real and visceral context. And so I just thought, how cool would it be if you did something around this? If you if you could buy the X Games and own it at least in some amount through community and fandom and athlete ownership and bring the athletes back and allow them to be compensated more because extreme sports athletes have been underpaid and undervalued for a really long time. And so I proposed it. I basically, I, I did a podcast. We had Apollo Ono, the speed skater who I've looked up to for a long time on for an episode. And I pitched him and my co-host on the idea of buying the X Games and web 3 the X Games. Put out the episode on a Friday and basically all hell broke loose. Um, I put out a tweet thread about it and people went nuts. I mean, I had everyone from like all of these companies reaching out to me about it that were interested in being involved. I had all these athletes in my DMs, like Lindsey Vaughn, famous athlete, you know, snowboarder, you know, Des Bryant, Baron Davis, all these, all these athletes were reaching out. Salima Masakela, who used to host the X Games, wanted to be involved. So it was very clear quickly that there was this unbelievable excitement and nostalgia that people felt. Not even extreme sports enthusiasts, but just people who had been around this growing up that felt this nostalgia connected to the X Games and wanted to see this come to life. So that was kind of where it all started. And I mean, it's only been a few weeks since since we put that out, but a ton, a ton has happened since then. Um, and so now we're kind of in the state of like trying to figure out, is this possible? 
possible? Can we actually go do it? And and is ESPN Disney actually willing to sell it? Or are they now thinking that it's valuable to them and they should hold on to it? Yeah, I mean, that, that for them, it seems like a no-brainer in terms of the amount of additional publicity they're going to get out of this thing. But when you get into the weeds of doing it, yes, it seemed like a great idea. And I watched I watched the whole thing catch fire because I just happened to see that tweet pretty soon after you put it out. And I was watching with interest how it all kind of caught fire. And it really did. I mean, that, that, that thread just kept going on and on and on in real time. But, um, you know, since then, has it kind of died down because everyone's gone, oh, great idea, but yeah, no, it's just, it's just too hard. Are we that far away? Or are we at a place where it's like, you know, this could actually happen? So it's continued on in the background. I have been more quiet on it in public because there's a handful of things happening in the background that are progressing, but that are confidential right, yeah, in sure, nature, sure, sure. Um, that are moving along in, in, a, in a sense. You know, the biggest issues with it, which I've been public about, are a couple. One, you actually need a team to go run this and go execute yeah. against it. It's not a it's not the constitution. You know, there was the whole thing about the constitution Dow and people trying to buy the constitution. That's a piece of paper. It's not that, right? It's a business. There's people, there's pensions, there's, you know, employment agreements, there's contracts, licensing. I mean, it's a ton of work to go diligence, figure this out and do a deal. So you need a team and there needs to be a really good team. So that's number one. You know, number two, it's not just an auction. This isn't a Christie's auction where they're auctioning off a piece of paper where you go and they're like, okay, we got the X game starting at 50 million. Do I have 50 million? Do I have 51? And you just raise your little paddle and you go win the X Games. It's not like that at all. And ESPN and Disney are like a massive bureaucratic organization. They haven't been easy to kind of connect with sure. around all of this. And so actually figuring out, do they want to sell? What's the price they would actually sell at? You know, who would they sell to is another one. And then it's just figuring out who the right partners are. You know, I've been reached out to by anyone you can possibly imagine, basically, that could be a buyer here. All these investment groups, a bunch of public companies that are interested Amazing. in it for different strategic regions. But figuring out who the right partner is and what the right kind of group is to do it is is tricky. And then I guess the last piece is like figuring out what exactly works from a Web3 angle here. My point you know, that I made earlier is relevant here, which is I think it's a kind of progressive step towards decentralization, not a 100% DAO purchasing the yep. X Games. My guess is the way it would work is you would have, you know, a kind of a lead partner that would take majority ownership and buy it, and a DAO would be funded and acquire, you know, a significant minority portion and basically take ownership of one angle of the reimagination of the games. Say it's the web threeification. So a DAO kind of buys. 40% or 20, 30, 40%, whatever the number is. And the DAO makes decisions around NFTs, web threeification, any, you know, any different angles that exist around that. Fantastic. You know, Seal, it's been it's been a real treat talking to you. And, and this, you know, this story we're gonna we're gonna be following anyway, but as this kind of continues to unfold, it'd be great to come back and maybe have another conversation about this as you know, who knows, three months, six months down the line when when you're in, in the catbird seat and uh, one of the owners of the X Games, that would be a fascinating conversation. <laughs> so we'll follow the story with interest. But listen, before we wrap up, just let the audience know who aren't familiar with you, how they can. You know, you've talked about uh, all, the, all the fantastic stuff you're doing, um, which I have to say is such a, is such a gift to the community. You know, the, the knowledge it you're is. putting out there is, um, is fantastic. And, and it's no surprise to me that you've, you've built such a strong following so quickly. So let people know how they can be a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, pr I appreciate the warm words. Um, you know, you can follow me at Sahil Bloom on on Twitter. Um, and then I've got a newsletter called The Curiosity Chronicle, which um, is on Substack today. Um, and uh, I send out, you know, 
couple couple times a week. Um, and then a new podcast called Where It Happens with my friend Greg Eisenberg. That's where I pitched the idea of the yep. X Games. Basically, we jam with amazing guests on cool business ideas and uh, talk through cool things like this. We just had uh, Alexis Ohanian, Gary V, um, have some amazing people wow, on there. Gary so it's been v. a blast. Wow. Fantastic. So, Hill, I've just got one very final, very, very final question. You, you, you obviously are a pitcher could throw the ball very fast with your Indian um, background. Did you ever uh, play or try cricket and did you try fast bowling at all? I did. So whenever I'd go to India, I used to go a couple times a year to see all my family there. And I would always play with the kids on the street. Um, there were a bunch of kids in the neighborhood and I'd play with them on the street. I always got in trouble for, they call it chucking. chucking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when you actually yeah. like your arm, what you're not allowed to do because it, that was how I would throw. And so I would like, r- I'd run up and then I would just like whip it. Right. And, uh, and they always would yell at me, he's chucking, he's chucking. Um, so it never really clicked for me. I never figured out the motion. Uh, well, we'll get you some coaching in yeah, yeah, least Maybe I've got it in. Yeah, yeah maybe. So you'll, thanks again, mate. It's good to see you and uh, continue success with everything you're doing. It's great to watch. Thank you guys so much. I'm such an admirer, Sahil. Keep it going, man. It's great. Uh, it was a blast. It's Thank great. you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, fascinating. You know, that, that uh, you know, Rog, this is, you've been all over this and, um, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting to be at a point where we're watching the stuff that, that seemed crazy I mean, literally a matter of months ago, right? Some of the stuff that we were talking about on the show as as being likely to be the next wave sounded so fantastical. And yet months down the track, we're starting to see things like the conversation we just had with Sahil and the X Games. It's it's amazing how fast everything's moving. Yeah, that's why we wanted them on. Uh, like I said in the interview, you know, we've, we've, we've been through three, four years now of Are You Not Entertained? And we've dealt mainly with big finance coming into sport and all the gnashing of the teeth. And just as maybe, maybe the traditional industry, what he called the establishment that never wants to change, is getting a little bit to grips with private equity, the ball is being moved forward again. And it's been moved forward by Web3 and it's been moved forward by DAOs and everything you heard there. And, you know, I do believe, because I, ultimately at the end of the day, I personally am a, a lover of, of sport. This, for me, is the first time I've seen something that can maybe marry the two things. You know, the fans' desire to be involved and not be taken for granted and not be treated as customers, the word they hate. Uh, they get a little bit of ownership, but also generate significantly new revenue streams. Um I think this uh, podcast will be a real ear opener for many, many of our listeners. Yeah, I suspect you're right. You, you do realize you're the only person in the entire world that calls these things DAOs, right? You do know that. Everyone calls them DAOs. I like DAOs. that. You, you, <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like this that. This is your brand. You, you, this is your you, brand. Know, you, you know me, Grant, by this, now. I always no, go no, to this, the other this, side of the boat. What, what could sound more boomer, right? <laughs> <laughs> Was well, that like M A O Setung, the the former Chinese? Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's the fellow. Yeah, that one. Or the B A O bun yeah. that you can enjoy in Hong Kong if if you want. <laughs> Look, I find this fascinating. I, we, you and I have been um, riding on uh, Roger's coattails for for some time. Sometimes agreeing with Roger, sometimes marvelling at his sort of um, crystal balling. But as you said just just now, is that the the last three or four months something's happening and it's happening quite quickly um, because the finance is coming in. Therefore, the model is changing because the financiers aren't aren't wanting the old model. They want the new model. And the new model is this, is, is this date, what is effectively 
the, the data value of the fan and, and all of the transactions from it. So I loved the X Factor um, thread. Um, the X Games. He's not buying the X Factor. Oh, sorry, X Factor. <laughs> that's oh, a lot cheaper. I, I should. I, I, I'll zip up my jumper and get a double chin. I'll look like Simon Cowell. I would. Um, I, I, I think for me, it's it's really interesting. Rogers talked a lot on Twitter already. In fact, endlessly this year, January one to well, probably thirty one. We've seen Roger <laughs> getting through the word count uh, inexorably. Is I do think twenty two is going to be the year of the real change and of the revolution, um, which is why I was using the Animal Farm. Um, that was great. I love that earlier well, because I do think it's happening now, and I I, I think as we said when Jerry Cardinal came on. All of the people that we have on the show, not all of them will be these uh, responsible citizens, but the sport will win where the people with the vision and also the finance, but do it in the right way, which is, as he said, the athletes and the fan. Those are the two constituent parts that make the value of sport. Everything else is is kind of is additional. Um, here was another guest of ours who really seems to get it. And isn't it interesting how, like all of them, they have a, a backstory which is a love of sport and a, being a, and a fan of sport. Yeah. No, the one thing that was fascinating to me about that thread, or one of the things that's fascinating about that thread, Rog, I don't know if you noticed this, but um, you know, in, in the very earliest parts of that thread, Sahil said, talked about, um, you know, look, this uh, it, it's going to be 50, it, it's for sale for around $50 million. And there were multiple tweets back saying yeah yeah for the 50 million dollars that's the easy part right and you know that that tells me one of two things or perhaps they both can be true at the same time one is that there is an awful lot of money uh in the fan community that is that is going to be genuinely very very easy to raise um because you can get you know a, a million fans to put 50 bucks in and away you go right but on the other flip side of it there there there, there could be some complacency there in that, oh yeah, yeah, we we've got no problem raising money because money's cheap, money's free at the moment, and you know, which is why I asked him the macro question because if 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 we do start to see interest rates going higher, raising fifty million dollars is not from from investors is just not going to be as simple as it has been for a very very long time now. You know, there could suddenly be uh, taps getting turned off left and right in terms of centralized investment funds. Yeah, well, that's a theme that we've been saying for a while. I think it was uh, three or four months ago, you, you put the question down, you know, what happens if interest rates start to rise? It's a different environment. We could be getting into perhaps a bear market. Uh, that's a huge, huge theme. All, all I can tell you is that um, what you're talking about is, is what you and I traditionally call the capital markets grant. What Web3 is, is, is different. And, and, and I know this gets into the whole crypto thing that's been going on for four years and you've been very much a part of and, 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 and being a, a, a commentator on. What, 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 I, what I believe is that, you know, it's not just buying teams. Um, I, I believe that the new forms of sports content shows um, they will be crowdfunded. Let's use that to make it simpler. Crowdfunded by Web3 web, web currency whether they are um, NFTs uh, or some kind of token, um, I, I don't know. So um, yes, uh, there's always going to be a bear market that's going to knock everything on its head. Yes, many things are overvalued, but I don't think that's the point. I think it's what we heard on this call today. 
that there is a disintermediation going on. That was one of his main points. There's a disintermediation going on, and woe betide anybody in the middle of that value chain, which traditionally has been everybody, from broadcasters to teams to sports agencies to media centres, whatever it is, if they don't get with this programme, they will be washed away. And, and, you know, maybe that's the purest form of sport. It's the field and the fans and everybody else that made a, a buck out of this will struggle to keep up. And, and I don't think that's going to change even if interest rates go up, Grant. Yeah, you may be right. Well, look, um, I guess that's it for another week. Um, all that remains is to thank our sponsor, Sports Digital, for their support for the show, to thank you, most importantly, for listening to us, and to tell you that we'll be back shortly. You can follow us in the meantime. You'll find us on Twitter at EntertainedR. That's the word A-R-E. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you can follow myself at RPM Como, still as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. Thanks, guys. Cheers.